Well, good evening and uh, welcome to Uni Church. Uh, my name's Rowan. So great to see you here as we hear part of this story. Um, a story that is such a long section of the book of Genesis. Uh, a story that really is not just this week, but started last week. And we were left with the hashtag cliffhanger, wondering what would happen in the life of Joseph in prison. Well, this week we get to see the next six chapters. See them unfold and look together at what God has to say to us about um, really our hearts. So why don't we pray? God would help us tonight to look at his word and to understand it. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much for the joy it is to hear your word read. We thank you that you do not stay silent, but that you speak to us and that through the events of history, we can know what you are like and that you show us how you want us to respond to you. We pray tonight by your spirit that you would Bring us out of wherever we are at to be able to focus on the reality of life, on the reality of what you have to say to us. By your spirit and through your word, show us tonight what we need to hear. Convict us, we pray. Amen. Well, I want you to think through your life for a moment and kind of catalogue the items that exist in your life and ask yourself, what is the costliest commodity you have in your life? What is the kind of costliest thing you have in your possession? The costliest thing that you, you own? Uh, recently, Sarah and I were looking at our budget, and I looked at how much we've spent in the last year on food. I'm like, are you serious? Like, food is expensive. Uh, I feel like we've been eating our way through our wallets. Uh, maybe it'd be cheaper to do that, just eat notes rather than buy food. I don't know. Maybe I just need to take on the student life and eat more two-minute noodles. I'm not sure. Food is expensive. Uh, a car if you own one, right? Cars are expensive as well. Uh, a friend of mine once said to me, cars are not an asset. I'm like, yes, they are. If you've got the car, it's an asset. He's like, no, 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 they're a liability. They cost you money. That's what a liability is, something that you've got you to reserve money to put aside for so that you can cover its expenses as it goes on in life for the non-commerce students out there. Um, and the art students, we'll explain what money is later. <laughs> hey, I have an arts degree, it's okay. I, I married an accountant, that's how I understood, right? Or maybe for you, it's a house. I mean, the idea of a house might seem so far away, like, man, that would be great to have a house. Um, I need a million dollars, but you know, it would be an amazing, like, it's expensive. Do you know that on average, you cost your parents between the age of one and 18, $250,000? Like, you are all expensive units, let me assure you, I look at my kids and I'm like, man, what we have four for? That's like a million bucks right there. <laughs> but I want to put it to you today that actually one of the costliest commodities on earth is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Forgiveness costs significantly. I mean, just think about it for a moment. How many marriages are significantly hindered? How many families are broken? How many relationships are torn apart and left to rot because we find forgiveness too costly? As we get to this second episode in the life of Joseph tonight, we're going to see a lesson on the costliest commodity on earth. A lesson on forgiveness and what we need to do. And where we left Joseph last week, he was, he was locked up in Pharaoh's prison. He'd been framed by Potiphar's wife, Pharaoh's second in charge, all because he wouldn't sleep with her. She wanted him to come and sleep with her. 
But he wouldn't. He ran as he should have. And so because of that, she framed him and he's in prison. Now you got to remember this, this guy, Joseph, remember? He was like the, the blessed child. Remember? Hashtag blessed. Everything he'd done in life seemed to turn to gold. His dad loved him. He showered him with gifts. He showered him with praise. His, his dad loved him more than he loved life himself. He was the boy who had dreams and aspirations. And he had this dream that the, the other brothers would bow down to him. And he wasn't quiet about it. He told them. Guys, you're all going to bow down to me. Do you see how great this is? Hashtag blessed. And you're like, ah. And of course, his brothers hated him because he's a little twerp. Right? They're like, he's always getting the praise of his father. And so they sell him off into slavery. And while his dreams got him into this mess, we find out this week that it will be a dream and through a dream that God would lift him out of the pit of prison and to the pinnacle of human race. We're going to see Joseph lifted from the pit of prison to the pinnacle of a human race. So come with me as we start Genesis 41 verse 1. It starts with two words. Two years later. I know, I need to count. (laughs) Three words. But they're about two years. He's been in prison two years. He told the the cupbearer and the bread maker about um, his ability to, to, to tell dreams, but they hadn't passed it on. There was nothing kind of happening. He'd been stuck in prison for this whole time. And then Pharaoh has a dream, not Joseph, the ruler of Egypt, a dream which no one could interpret, a dream through which God would save the world. Come with me. Chapter 41, verse 15. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have a dream and no one can interpret it. But I've heard it said about you that you can hear a dream and interpret it. And listen to what Joseph responds with. (laughs) I am not able to, Joseph answered Pharaoh. Things not to say when you're asked for help by the king of the country. Right? Oh, I really want you to give me some help to interpret this dream. Sorry, I can't do it. Like, what's he thinking? He's here in prison. He's the dream guy. His dream's got him into trouble. What will happen? But listen to how he responds. It is God who will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. <laughs> he, pushes, he pushes the limelight away from his abilities to the God who has made him, to the God who gives answers. He wants Pharaoh to see his God is the one that works through him. His God is the one who is in control. The answer comes, God tells Joseph, that these crazy dreams with the seven fat cows and the seven skinniest ugly cows. If you get bored during the sermon, just draw some ugly cows. And you'll be like, okay, what is that? Um, well, us. <laughs> We're not careful. No, seven years of blessing followed by seven years of famine. There'll be seven years of full harvest and lots of food and abundance through which Egypt would collect to collect up and save for the seven years of famine that would come following that. Pharaoh hears this response from Joseph, well, from God through Joseph. And look what he does. Actually, look what God does through Joseph. Verse 38 of chapter 41. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find anyone like this? A man who has God's spirit in him. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one as intelligent and wise as you are. You will be over my house and all my people will obey your commands. Only with regard to the throne will I be greater than you. He's gone from pit to pinnacle. There's only one person greater than him in the whole world at this moment. And that is Pharaoh. God has placed him at this point. He is on top of the world. 
You can kind of imagine if it was in today's language, it'd be like the, the front of the Titanic, right? Leonardo DiCaprio, right? We're the king of the world. Okay, I thought it was funny. <laughs> Seriously, I cried in Titanic. Yeah, I know. You'd think I'd know the ending. Anyway. Sarah laughed at me. But back in Canaan, not everything's going as well as it is for Joseph. They're about to starve. The famine has hit. Uh, there's been seven years of blessing. Egypt has, Joseph has gathered all the food throughout those seven years. And as we reach chapter 42, we see that Joseph's family, who we've not heard about for a long, long time, are about to starve. Listen to what happens. 42 verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you keep looking at each other? I say to my kids all the time, stop looking at Why are you just looking at each other? Do something, right? Listen, he went on. I've heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so we'll live and not die. And so 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. Now, what do you notice about those three verses? Anything stand out for anyone? Anything a bit odd about what goes on? There's grain in Egypt. So the dad, Jacob, sends the, the, the boys down to go and get food. Notice anything? I hear some whispers. He only, only 10 go. How many brothers are there? There's 12, but they don't know there's 12. They don't know Joseph's still alive. There's 11 brothers. Why 10? Why does one brother stay back? I'll tell you why. Because while things have changed for Joseph... They haven't changed for Jacob. He's still playing favorites. And he switched his blessing and honor and the way he thought his favoritism. He switched it from Joseph when he disappeared to Benjamin, the other brother, the younger brother. Benjamin has replaced Joseph as the center of the life of Jacob. And Jacob hasn't learned. The brothers arrive in Egypt, sans one. Benji, he's left back at home. And look what happens. Chapter 42, verse 6. Joseph was in charge of the country. He sold grain to all its people. His brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. Now at this point, little bells ring for us. I remember a dream Joseph had where the 11 sheaves of corn would all turn and bow to his one sheath, the 12th. And here before his eyes is that dream being fulfilled, except there's only 10, not 11. There's only 10. But imagine the moment. Have you ever had one of those I told you so moments? One of those moments where kind of something happens in your life and people come and then it happens and you get to say kind of whether it's out loud or kind of in the quietness of your breath, told you so. You ever had them? I have them often, but it's usually Sarah saying, I told you so to me. (laughs) Right? She's like, I told you that it happened. I'm like, yeah, fair enough. And she doesn't say it all the time. She's very gracious and generous. But I did have one of those moments once. Uh, and it's a moment that was kind of, a, it, was, it affected me a little bit. Uh, I was in year two at primary school, year two. And uh, we had this teacher, uh, we called her the dragon lady. because She wasn't the nicest name to call a teacher. Sorry for your teachers out there. Um, but she just, she was kind of like a dragon lady. Anyway, so uh, we had parent-teacher interviews. And in those days, you didn't have these three-way conferences where the parents sit in with the teacher and the kids. Uh, it was just the parents and the kids and, and the teacher, sorry just the parents and the teacher. The kids weren't even there. So the teachers could really tell the parents what's going on, not just some nice fluffy story. Oh, they're great. Johnny does such a good job. You know, here's what we've worked out earlier to say. Anyway, slight little issue there for me. And um, so this teacher, the dragon lady, told my parents when I was in year two 
uh, that I'd never be smart enough to go to university. She told my parents. And my parents, at some point later, told me, and I tell you, it was like fuel to my fire. I'm like, really? She thinks that I won't be smart enough to go to university? Now, it didn't make me study. It would have been helpful if it did. (laughs) Maybe, Maybe that would have been more helpful. But it did make me want to prove her wrong. I'm like, I'll show you. And there's this little sense of me that I thought, I'll show you. And I probably forgot about that. Well, a number of years later, while I was studying at university, um, I also started a little software company with some software that I'd written that um, was used to do student reports in schools. And so the software uh, actually helped teachers to do student reports and gave out all their reporting stuff. And I came to run a a training day for one of the schools I'd sold my software to in the area. I had about 12 teachers and I I stood up, I got paid great money, paid 100 bucks an hour those days. It was brilliant uh, to stand in front of these teachers and explain how to use my software and train them in it. And as I got in front of the room, I welcomed everyone and my eyes dropped on the dragon lady. There I was at that moment teaching this woman who said I'd never be smart enough to go to university how to use software that I'd written. And then she's asking all these dumb questions and every bone in my body wanted to go, ha, you're the dumb one. Like, that's what I wanted to say. (laughs) Joseph's brothers turn up. They bow down before him. And I can guarantee you that nearly every bone in his body wanted to cut off their heads. These brothers that sold him into slavery that had plotted to kill him, are now here in front of him. And you can bet bottom dollar as he sees them, he wants to teach them a lesson. And he remembers back to what happened. Not only did he, they plot to kill him, but Judah, the ringleader of the bunch, goes, let's just not kill Joseph. Let's sell him. Let's make money off him as well. We can get rid of him and get rich. This is like a double bonus. Then they went off and they deceived their father. They lied about what had happened. They caused tremendous grief within the family. And none of these brothers' actions had ever seen the light of day. Oh, I tell you, I'd want to bring them to the light of day, wouldn't you? I'd want to show them right there and right then. There'd been no honesty, no repentance, just 20 years of lies and cover-ups. The text doesn't give us any hint of remorse for any of these people. Well, they even felt bad about what they had done. It makes me ask the question, what secrets are you carrying? What lies are you trying to cover up? These brothers have been trying to cover up these secrets for 20 years. They've been carrying these lies and the burden was there, I'm sure. What secrets are you carrying right now? What things are you trying to hide from the true and living God or from others? What we're about to see is God do open heart surgery on this family. For he won't let lies go uncovered. Through Joseph, we're going to see the character of God revealed to uncover these lies and see reconciliation happen and forgiveness happen within this family. What we're going to see through Joseph is the character of God revealed. The God who acts with truth and justice. The God who acts with truth and love as well. Have a look with me at 42 verse 7. When Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. Sorry, when Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. Uh, From the land of Canaan to buy food, they replied. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. 
And at first you think, Joseph's doing what I would do. He's getting angry at them. He's kind of getting wound up to smash them. But then we read verse 9 and look carefully. Joseph remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You've come to see the weakness of the land. Joseph isn't responding here with vengeance. He's not toying with them either and pretending that they're spies to be harsh to them. His reaction to them comes when he remembered his dreams. And what did he remember? That in his dreams there weren't 10, but there were 11. He remembered it wasn't just 10 brothers bowing down, but 11. And Joseph here, in order to fulfill God's plan, wants to see God's plan happen in its fullness. He wasn't going to reveal who he was just yet, for there was not 11 in front of him. And that wasn't all either. In the end, the dreams talked about the sun and the moon and the stars bowing down. His whole family, his father, the whole clan of Israel, of Jacob. And so in order to bring this family to repentance and to Egypt, God, through Joseph, tests them so they might be saved, so they might repent. See, there's a sickness in this family that needs to be removed and cut out. A sickness they don't even know they have. A sickness that they're just kind of plodding along with, ignoring. And God, through Joseph, acts in such a way to bring to light their sin. Verse 9, chapter 42. You are spies. You have come to see the weakness of the land, says Joseph. Listen to their response, verse 10. No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food, they said. We are all sons of the one man. That's true. We are honest. (laughs) Your servants are not spies. They're honest. They sold their brother into slavery and told their dad that he was dead. How honest can you get? Like these guys are, I want want them babysitting my kids, wouldn't you? They're not honest. They have no idea. They've been everything but honest for the last 20 years, hiding the sin that exists within. How often we lie to ourselves about our motives and our actions. How often we need to be reminded of the truth that we aren't honest, that we have rejected God, that we have hurt others. Now, God the surgeon is going to bring this sickness in this family to light. He's going to cut open the family and reveal their own wickedness in order to save them, in order to save Israel, and in order to save the whole world. But before any of that can happen, they must see the necessity of repentance. The necessity of repentance. So Joseph tests them. Look at verse 14 in chapter 42. Then Joseph said to them, I've spoken. You are spies. This is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Then look what they say in verse 21. Then they say to each other, obviously we are being punished for what we did to our brother. Ah, finally something's coming to light. We saw his deep distress when he pleaded with us, but we would not listen. That is why this trouble has come to us. Something is going on in their hearts, but it's not all good. Look at verse 22. But Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to harm the boy? Told you so. But you wouldn't listen. Now he must account for his blood. They're recognizing that something is going on here and linked to their actions. After all those years of lies, of callousness, 
darkness, whatever that is, spreading the kind of suppressing the facts. The brothers are starting to realize what they have done. Guilt is starting to rise in their hearts. Joseph is beginning to uncover that which their father's tears never touched. But notice Joseph. Notice how he reveals God's character in this as well. When he sees their callousness working, he's not happy. Sorry, when he sees their, their when he sees, sorry, let me start again. When he sees their consciences working, he can't handle it. He's not standing back happy in some vindictive way. It overwhelms him when he sees them starting to realize what they've done. Look at verse 23. They did not realize that Joseph understood them since there was an interpreter between them. He turned away from them and wept. Then he turned back and spoke to them. He took Simeon from them and had him bound before their eyes. Right here is a man with unlimited power. He could do to these brothers whatever he wanted. He could bring down the firm hand of justice and truth. And yet at the same time, Joseph is incredibly sensitive. He bursts into tears because he loves his brothers and he sees their consciences working and them actually starting to think through what they have done. What God is doing is displaying his characteristics through his servant, Joseph. God speaks the truth in love. God weeps. Joseph speaks the truth in love. He weeps. If he spoke the truth only and had no love, he would just bring down the firm hand of justice and be like, no, you've done this, kill them. Cut off their heads. That would just be truth. And if he spoke love only, he'd be like, oh, welcome back in. Just come in, forget about it. It doesn't matter. Just come into the house and there'd be no truth. There'd be no justice and there'd be no lesson learned and they'd get away with it. But truth and love together seek to see the conversion of character. God works in truth and love to change us into the people he wants us to be and help us to recognize who he is. When God sees our brokenness, he doesn't leave us on our own. He doesn't act in truth only and send us all to hell. But he also doesn't act in love only and forget justice. He weeps in truth and love as he disciplines us to bring us to repentance. Here, through Joseph, is displayed the character of God. In Luke 19.41, as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, as he looks over the city that's about to be demolished just a few years later, and he sees this city that have turned their backs on God, knowing that they'd be smashed, knowing God's judgment was coming, he weeps. Speaking the truth in love. And then walks to the cross for those who've rejected him. The true and living God is so unlike every other God in every other religion on the face of the planet. This God, the true and living God, is the only God of all religions in the world that weeps for his people. The Buddhist, the Hindu, the Muslim, they don't know of weeping gods because their gods either have complete truth or complete love. But this God through Joseph shows truth and love together. Joseph weeps. Yet he didn't trust his brothers. There was more surgery to be done on their hearts. In Hebrews 12, 
The writer of Hebrews tells us that God tests those he loves to discipline them. Like a father disciplines his sons for for their benefit. So that we can share in God's holiness. So that we can be saved from our own brokenness. Check it out later, Hebrews 12. But that's exactly what Joseph does. This whole next section is a testing so they might repent. It's a surgery, cutting out the wickedness and brokenness of this family and helping them to see genuine forgiveness and reconciliation. You see, forgiveness and reconciliation cannot occur without repentance. Forgiveness and reconciliation cannot occur without repentance. The world we live in just wants forgiveness without repentance. Have you seen that? Oh, just forgive them. Just let it go. If you were loving, you wouldn't hold them to account. You wouldn't punish them. Just forgive them. That's what the world wants. C.S. Lewis is quoted as saying this. Everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has something to forgive. Everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has something to forgive. But for this family to be healed, for forgiveness to take place... There must be repentance. It's the same with us and God. Forgiveness requires repentance. God requires us to turn back to him, to say sorry for what I've done, to recognize that there is wrong and turn to him. Repentance means like a 180 degree to turn from going this way to say, sorry, that's wrong. I'm now going to go that way. Have a look at what Jesus teaches. Let's look at a few verses. Luke 24, 47. Jesus says, repentance For forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. Acts 2 verse 38. Peter says this. Repent, Peter said to them, and be baptized each of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. Acts 3.19. Therefore repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. That seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Do you see the link between repentance and forgiveness? Repentance precedes forgiveness. Look at Acts 20, 26, actually, verse 20. Instead, I preach to those in Damascus first and to those in Jerusalem and in all the region of Judea and to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. Repentance, turning back, apologizing, acknowledging your sin is the necessary condition of the person who receives forgiveness. You can't be forgiven if you don't acknowledge there's anything to forgive. What does it mean to forgive? Well, forgiveness means really to to let go of, to to leave, to tolerate, to permit, uh, to send away, to release, to cancel, to pardon. They're kind of words that are tied in with what forgiveness means. But there are really two aspects of forgiveness that I I just want to focus on and, and touch on tonight. To forgive someone means two things. Number one. We let go of the debt. To forgive someone is to let go of the debt, to grant forgiveness, to release them from whatever debt they had to us, to say, it's okay, I'll cover that. But that's only half of it. See, in order to forgive someone, we also need to give up the resentment. Point two. Let go of the debt, point number one. The second aspect, give up resentment. You need both aspects. If you don't forgive the debt, well, you haven't forgiven them, no matter how you treat them. But more commonly, you can give up the debt, but resent them all your life. I forgive you. I want nothing to do with you ever again. I hate you. 
You might have experienced that. You might find yourself in that tonight towards someone for the way they have acted. Resentment is the first hurdle to forgiveness. It's the first thing we need to jump over, but it's also the most dangerous hurdle. If we don't give up resentment, we're in great danger of damaging our own life and heart as well. Nelson Mandela said this, that harboring resentment is like drinking poison than hoping it will kill your enemies. Harboring resentment is like drinking poison and hoping it will kill your enemies. Joseph could have held on to his resentment. He could have fanned it into flames. He could have not let go, but let it grow inside him and taken him out, taken the the brothers out. And we all feel the temptation to do that. It's so hard to forgive. Some of you know that far more than I do. You've experienced great pain from others who've hurt us, who've damaged us and caused us immense horror and hardship. It's, It's so difficult. We need to follow the example of Joseph, who at this moment works all that he can to help his brothers see that they need to repent. He goes to them and helps them in his position to recognize that they need to repent, that they need to say sorry. He helps them recognize that in order for there to be forgiveness, they need to see their own sinfulness. They need to see what they have done wrong. We need to follow the example of Joseph. We also need to follow the example of Jesus. On that cross 2,000 years ago, when Jesus could have stepped down and wiped out everyone who was hurting him and putting him on that cross, he didn't. He remained silent. Just before he was put on the cross, he says to one of the Jews that was following him, who's just cut off the, one of the, the people who's come to him's ear, he said, do you not know at any second I could have called down 10, 12 legions of angels? Do you not know who I am and the power that I have? But he doesn't. He does not open his mouth. It's not that he doesn't believe in judgment. Oh, he does. But he entrusts judgment to the one who will judge justly. He entrusts judgment to the one who will judge justly on that final day. There will be a judgment. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Wrong will be repaid. Those that have wronged us, justice will come to light. And the best person that should bring it to light is the God who is just and fair. That's why it's far better for us if we don't repay it, but we allow God to repay that because God is judge. However, forgiveness requires repentance. That means, forgiveness means that we, the person who's been wrong, need to walk the the kind of chasm of hurt. We need to let the other person know that they've hurt us, that they've wronged us. That's what forgiveness requires. That we actually need to go to them and do the hard yards of not staying resentful over here, but helping them understand what they have done and offering forgiveness should they repent. That's exactly what God does, isn't it? He truthfully shows us our sin. He doesn't hold back. He does heart surgery on on us and shows us where we've wronged him. We've turned our backs on him so that we may repent. So that we might recognize what we've done and ask for forgiveness. For not treating God as God. For not putting him in the place that he deserves. For living life, just not being rude, but just ignoring him in all that we've done. You cannot be forgiven if you do not know what you have done. 
You cannot be forgiven if you do not repent. Repentance is hard because it requires us to take the responsibility for how we've acted and for how we have hurt others. When was the last time you repented? When was the last time you went back to your boyfriend or girlfriend, your husband, your wife, your flatmate, your friend, your colleague, and said, look, I'm sorry for the way that I acted. The way I did that was was wrong and I shouldn't have done it. When was the last time you went to your God and said to him, you know the thoughts of my heart. You know the actions of my life. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for not placing you in the position you deserve to be in. Please, please forgive me. Forgiveness requires repentance. Well, there was no reconciliation for these brothers until they came to the point, the point of repentance. And to bring them to repentance, it took a global famine. How hard it is for us to swallow our pride and repent. For these brothers, the whole world had to starve. Joseph sends the guilty brothers who've come for their grain without saying anything about who he is back to their father to get Benjamin. It's the dream, the 11 sheaves of corn all bowing down to him. He sends the brothers back to prove their character, to help them realize they need to repent while he keeps Simeon in chains back in Egypt. So come and watch what happens over the next few chapters as the brothers turn from guilt to grace. Point number four, as Joseph performs surgery on their hearts. They're on the way home after getting this grain, pretty happy with how the whole thing went, but a little bit frustrated that, hey, we had to leave a brother back there because they want, it, they want us to bring Benjamin back. And on the way home, the brothers find this shocking discovery. And I want you to imagine this. You've just gone to the most powerful, second most powerful man in the world. You've got some grain, the thing that you need to survive. He said, go get your other brother. You're sent on your way. They sit down for a rest. They open their pack to just to check out the corn and be like, whoa, we've got the, the grain. We've got food. And this is what they see. Verse 28 of chapter 42. My money has been returned. It's here in my bag. Their hearts sank. Trembling, they turned to one another and said, what is this God has done to us? <laughs> At least they realize who's in control. At least they realize the one who is working all of these circumstances to recognize that before Joseph and before their father and before their God, they have wronged him. They go home, they open all the sacks and all the money that they gave has been returned. Jacob, the dad, is like, what have you done? <laughs> We're going to be smashed. You've, you, you've taken the grain without paying for it and they're going to know you are in so much trouble. We're in so much trouble. And then the brothers say, well, he wants us to come back and he wants us to come back with Benjamin. The apple of Jacob's eye. The center of Jacob's idolatry. The one whom he shifted from Joseph to the only other son of his beloved Rachel. But they refuse to do what Joseph says. They don't send Benjamin back. Jacob can't handle it. They stay living in Canaan with the grain that Joseph gave them until they run out of grain. They've used up all the grain trying to run from repentance. That's what's going on. They know they can't go back without Benjamin and get more grain because Joseph will kill them. And here we see God's scalpel work through the idols or 
on the idols of Jacob's heart as well. Look at what Jacob says in verse 38. But Jacob answered, my son will not go down with you. For his brother is dead and he alone is left. If anything happens to him on your journey, you'll bring my gray hairs down to Sheol in sorrow. Do you see what he said? Do you see how his favoritism has given him tunnel vision? His brother is dead and he alone is left. Really? He alone? Hello, there's 10 of us here. We're your sons too? And you're saying that Benjamin is the only one left? Oh, will this be a rerun? Will these brothers get so angry at Benji this time and say, look at him, he's, he's, he's the favored one. Jacob's favoritism is so tunnel vision. He can't see anyone but Benjamin. It was Jacob's favoritism that split the whole family apart in the first place. Here God is bringing down the scalpel and cutting out the sickness of the human heart in this family called Israel. Will Jacob trust God with his son's life? Like Abraham did with Jacob's father, Isaac. And then Judah speaks up. Remember Judah? Remember the atrocities that went on? Judah was the ringleader of them all. He's the entrepreneurial spirit who said, hey, let's let's not kill him. Let's get money for it as well. He was the ringleader of them all. But listen to the way his heart begins to change. Uh, This section uh, is not on the screen. Open up your Bibles because we're going to read a bit of this in chapter 43 and 44. So Genesis 43 and 44. 43 verse 8. Judah, the ringleader of them all, the one that had suggested they sell the brother. Send the boy with me. We'll be on our way so that we may live and not die. Neither we nor your children or our children. I will be responsible for him. You can hold me personally accountable. If I do not bring Benjamin back to you and set him before you, I will be guilty before you forever. If we had not wasted time, we could have come back twice by now. Unless Benji comes, we all die. I will take the responsibility. There's something going on in this brother called Judah's life. Finally, the dad agrees and they go with Judah taking the responsibility for them all. Genesis 43, verse 15. The men took this gift. They they took gifts back down. Double the amount of money and Benjamin. They made their way down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. What will happen? Look at verse 16. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his steward, take these men to my house, slaughter an animal and prepare it for they will eat with me at noon. The man did as Joseph had said and brought them to Joseph's house. Verse 26. When Joseph came home, they brought him the gift that he had carried into the house and they bowed down to the ground before him. Uh, he, He asked if they were well and said, how is your elderly father that you told me about? Is he still alive? What's Joseph doing? The sun, the moon and the stars will bow down before me. Now that Benjamin is here, The rest of this dream must happen. Verse 28, they answered, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed down to honor him. Again, as the dream had said. Verse 29, when Joseph looked up and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he asked, Is this your youngest brother that you told me about? 
And he said, may God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph hurried out because he was overcome with emotion for his brother again. He was about to weep. He went into an inner room to weep. Then he washed his face, came out. Regarding, regaining his composure, he said, serve the meal. He just wants to say, look at me, Benji. It's me, Joe, your brother. You know, I'm so glad you were here. We are like full brothers. I've missed you for so long. I love you. I'm so glad you're here. But he doesn't. Not yet. Because there's still more work to be done in the hearts of these brothers to bring the whole family back to repentance and to Egypt. So he plants his special silver cup in Benjamin's sack and sends them off on their way with renewed grain. And off they go. He waves goodbye. Then he whispers to his troops, I think they've taken my silver cup and sends the troops after them. The troops catch up to the boys. They arrest them. Have a look. Genesis 44 verse 6. When the troops overtook them, he said these words to them. He said, why does my Lord say these things? Your servants could not possibly do such a thing. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money we found at the top of our bags. How could we steal gold and silver from your master's house? If any of us has found to have it, he must die. And we also will become my Lord's slaves. Wow. We've not done it, they're saying. We didn't steal this stuff. Verse 10. The steward replied, what you've said is right, but only the one who is found to have it will be my slave and the rest of you will be blameless. So each one quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. The steward searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes. See, the brothers at this point are faced with exactly the same situation that they were faced with all those years ago. The favoured son is before them. They could simply say, take Benji. Our dad loves him so much anyway. Maybe they could dip something in some, in some blood and say a goat got him. That they're faced with exactly the same situation. God has given them a do-over with a favoured son in front of them. How will they respond? They could just say, okay, and then walk off unharmed with all the grain that they need. But they don't. They turn back 180 degrees and say, we will go with him back to Joseph. We will face the music and bow to the ground again. Chapter 44, verse 16. As they stand in front of Joseph, what can we say to my Lord? Judah replied. How can we plead? How can we justify ourselves? God has exposed your servant's iniquity. Too right he has. But there's more. We are now my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup was found. We'll serve you, says Judah. We'll be here for you. Then Joseph, verse 17, said, I swear that this will, I will not do this. The man whose possession the cup was found will be my slave. The rest of you can go in peace to your father. And for a second time, God gives them the chance to do what they did before. Do you see it? Leave Benji. Go. Sell him off. Let him, let him rot in Egypt for some grain and some money and go back home. But they have learned. And at that moment, Judah steps onto the stage of history and gives one of the longest speeches in Genesis. Listen to what he says. We'll get 44 
verse 18. But Judah approached Joseph and said, Sir, please let me speak to your servant. Please let your servant speak personally to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant, for you are like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servants, Do you have a father or brother? And we answered, My Lord, we have an elderly father and a younger brother, the child of his old age. The boy's brother is dead. He is the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Then you said, Joseph, to your servants, bring him to me so that I can see him. But we said to my Lord, our father, to you, sorry, the boy cannot leave his father. If he were to leave, his father would die. Then you said of your servants, if your younger brother does not come down with you, you will not see me again. This is what happened when we went back to your servant, my father. We reported your words to him. But our father said, go again and buy us some food. We told him we cannot go down unless our younger brother goes with us. So if our younger brother isn't with us, we cannot see the man. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left. I said that he must have been torn to pieces and I've never seen him again. If you also take this one from me and anything happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs to Sheol in sorrow. So if I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, his life is wrapped up with the boy's life. When he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. Then your servants will have brought the gray hairs of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. Your servant became accountable to my father for the boy, saying, if I do not return him to you, I will always bear the guilt for sinning against you, my father. Now please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Let him go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father without the boy? I could not bear to see the grief that would overwhelm my father. Judah has recognized what he has done as the ringleader of this clan. And he refuses to do it again. Save them. Take me. I will stay. I will take the penalty that we deserve. I will take it on myself for them. Please let me stay. Take me, not him. The lion of the tribe of Judah. At this moment, standing in the place of his brother. And history begins to throb with expectation. The salvation of this family, the healing of their hearts is completely dependent on learning the principle of self-sacrifice. I give my life for you, not I use your life for me. Judah, the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus, stands there and says, take me instead of them. Joseph is so moved, he can't hold it in. He saw their repentance is real. He makes every other person leave the room. And then he says these words, Genesis 45, verse 4. And I think it's on the screen. I am Joseph, your brother, the one you sold into Egypt. Imagine what's going through their heads at this point. Oh, it's him. We're stuffed, right? What would you be thinking? They are standing there, looking on the one that they had nearly pierced, Jacob's lost son, standing in absolute power. Their hearts stand still with a revelation that the one they had rejected is now the ruler of the world. But listen to what Joseph says. 
Verse 5. Don't be worried or angry with yourselves for selling me here because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. In chapter 50, we read um, this. Chapter 50, verse 17. Say this to Joseph. Please forgive your brother's transgression and their sin, the suffering they caused you. That's what Jacob, in his dying breath, tells the brothers to say to Joseph, right? Go to him and ask him for repentance, for forgiveness. And they say to Joseph, Therefore, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when their message came to him. His brothers also came, bowed down before him and said, we are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me, but God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, do not be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph wraps his arms around these brothers And the reconciliation begins because they are brought to their knees in repentance. Because the repentance is real. Friends, this whole story about Joseph is a story about the heart of God himself. The God who brings truth and love. The God who works to bring repentance in each of our lives to show us our ugliness and sin. And then show us the solution. His forgiveness offered at the cross. What happened here in the life of Joseph and Jacob happened on a far larger scale when the lion of the tribe of Judah went to the cross and he stood in our place and said, Father, pour out your wrath on me, not them. Let me take the penalty that they deserve. Let me die in their place so they could be forgiven. Oh, Jesus is what Judah could never be, but what he was trying to be. For the debt we owed God, Jesus died on that cross and took our place so that we could be forgiven. As he was nailed there and experienced the wrath of God, these words came out of his mouth. It is finished. He absorbed the penalty that you and I deserve so we could stand free, forgiven. God placed this story in Genesis 41 to 50. To help you and I to recognize we need to repent. We need to come to the God who has stood in our place and taken the penalty for us and say sorry. We need to recognize that Jesus is the true lion from the tribe of Judah. Look with me at what John says in Revelation 5 verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, stop crying. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has been victorious. So he may open the scroll and its seven seals. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered and you redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. Friends, have you recognized this line of the tribe of Judah? Have you recognized your need for forgiveness? To repent before the true and living God. Are you trying to live your life hiding the brokenness between you and God? Friends, today, won't you set your sights on the vision of the Lion of Judah? 
the one who has died in our place so that you and I could be forgiven. Won't you recognize forgiveness has been offered in him? Take me, not them. When we reflect on the forgiveness we have been offered, how petty is our bitterness? How trivial our resentment at the things that we struggle so hard to forgive with others compared to that which Jesus bore for us. The only question for us to ask tonight is this. Is your repentance real? Let's pray. Father God, As we look at this mammoth story of humanity, this story of a family who turned their backs on you and one another, we are reminded that that is exactly what we have done to you. We have not treated you as we ought. We consistently put ourselves in your place rather than treating you as the true and living God. We ask that tonight through your spirit and through this word, you would do heart surgery on us. You would show us our sinfulness and complacency. It show us where we need to come and repent and ask for forgiveness. So, Lord, tonight we stand saying we are sorry. We are sorry for the times we haven't treated you as we ought. Please forgive us and help us to trust in your son who has taken the penalty for us and help us to live lives joyfully in the response to what Jesus has done, forgiving others because we too have been forgiven by you. We pray that tonight, by your spirit, you would cause our repentance to be real. Pray this in your son's name. Amen.